This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. As they're making their way out, I want to encourage you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, as we continue a series on the kingdom of heaven. Just to remind you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word or don't have it on your phone, we do have hard copies of the Bible in the chairs near where you are seated. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please feel free to take that as a gift from Trinity. It would thrill us uh, for all those Bibles to be taken and we have to replace them. So please feel free to use that. As I said, we are in a series thinking about the kingdom of heaven. And today I want us to think about specifically verse 20, about entering the kingdom. Now, I'm going to read verses 17 through 20 just to set the context in which this is happening. And since I'm not really going to dive into verses 17 through 19, I want to just make a comment or two so we can have a little bit of understanding as we move into verse 20. Verses 17 through 19, Jesus talks about the, the, the Old Testament, the Scripture, the Torah, the Law, the Prophets, writings. And I believe that verses 17 through 20 are really introductory. Because when he begins preaching in verses 21 on throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say some things that are very shocking, even scandalous. He says, you've heard it, for example, said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you're angry in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but Jesus said, I say to you, if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Once again, those words would be scandalous to his hearers. And just in case they begin to think that when Jesus said, I say to you, that he is in some way undermining the Old Testament, verses 17 through 19 makes it clear he's not. Look at what Jesus said. Do not think I've come to abolish the law, that is, do away with the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying, I'm not bringing some eraser to say, forget the Old Testament. To the contrary, he says, I have come to be the embodiment of the Old Testament Scripture. All the sacrificial laws were fulfilled when Jesus died as our sacrifice. The laws about cleanliness Jesus did away with in his righteous life. And he, he fulfilled completely the law about living purely before God. So while we still should not commit murder or adultery, Jesus is saying, I've come to show you what the life looks like that is lived according to God's instructions. Verse 18, Jesus shows the permanence of God's word. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, get ready because what I'm about to say will shock you, but I'm not doing away with God's word. Now we get to verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let the gravity of those words sink in for a moment. Unless your righteousness goes above and beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can forget about entering the kingdom of heaven. May God be glorified in the reading and hearing of his word this morning. After my mother passed away in April of 2016, we began that process which many of you are familiar with. That process of going through mom's belongings and stuff. Now, mom had with her this blue Samsonite cosmetic case that she carried on vacation every year. That I, I can't remember us not having that. In fact, it's in my garage now. And I'm convinced that were there to be a nuclear explosion, that case would survive. Now, as we were going through that, we lifted out the upper compartment that where she would keep all of her cosmetics to the compartment underneath, which was like this, this deep pit that everything was kept in. And we found there, and I've got a picture of this, some items she had kept from a vacation of ours. Um, let this warm up. I forgot to turn it on. There we go. Go on to the next slide, if you will. Like I said, I forgot to turn it. There we go. Back in the summer of 72, we visited Disney World. That's me and my brother there on the right uh, in front of where they were constructing Space Mountain. Now, what drew my attention is on the left. Those are the tickets we found in Mom's overnight case. Tickets from this trip. And my daughter put them in a frame and gave them to me for my birthday. Back when it first opened, you would buy a book of tickets. And then to ride one of the rides, you would tear out three tickets. To ride the ride of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, it was four tickets. And a book of tickets cost $6.75 for an adult. And five seventy-five for a child. Six dollars and seventy-five cents for Disney World. Now, what do you think would happen today if we decided to load up the family truckster, drive down to Disney World, come up to the gate, and I had those tickets with me, and I get to the ticket stand and I say, "Hey, I don't need to buy any. I've got these from 1972. I'm ready to go in." How do you think they would respond? <laughs> that'll be another $400. Then you can go in and bring your tickets with you. In other words, those tickets that were good at one point are no longer good. They will not gain entrance. That's the question I want to ask you today about entrance into the kingdom. We've talked in two sermons about repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means to turn, to, to go back to but it doesn't really deal with entrance. Is it possible that one could sit in their mind, I want to get to the kingdom of heaven, but still not gain entrance? I think Jesus is warning us of that real possibility because of what he said in verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. Now when he talks about righteousness, he's meaning adhering to a standard. Ethically, it refers to morally upright behavior that meets what God expects. Think of it like this. In some classes in school, you can enter into a contract with your teacher. If you want to make an A, here's what you need to do. If you want to make a B, here's what you need to do. Or for students like me, if you want to make a C, here's what you need to do. You enter into that contract. Here's what's expected. 
If you don't do these things, you don't make an A. That's just the way it is. Well, for us, the standard is God's holiness. And he's saying that if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must reach what God demands in perfection, in action, in motivation, in thoughts, in everything. Now, that is daunting enough until you read the standard that is raised in verse 20. Our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Now, the scribes and Pharisees set a ridiculously high standard because they took keeping the Torah very seriously. Their whole life was built around obeying God's law. And one of the prime areas they sought to obey God's law was the Sabbath. This is how seriously they took it. And I'm not making this up. There are recorded discussions in the Mishnah and the Talmud about should you eat an egg that a hen laid on a Sabbath? Is it right? If the hen lays an egg, are you breaking the law of God by eating it if the egg was laid on the Sabbath? Here was their answer, by the way, in case you're wondering. It depends on why you bought the hen. If you bought the hen to lay eggs, then the hen was working on the Sabbath and you shouldn't eat that egg. However, if you bought the hen just to have around the house to maybe have for chicken dinner later on and it lays an egg, that's okay because your contract with the chicken was for work. So you got to go back to your legal requirements from the chicken. But you see the minutia? Can you imagine having any peace or joy? And Jesus did not deny that they were righteous, by the way. He did not deny that they sought to do right. For example, that we're going to get to the latter part of Matthew 23, 23 in a moment. But notice what Jesus says. You scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. He doesn't deny that. Now, what, they, what he's saying there is, you all are striving to live according to Leviticus 27.30, where it says, every tithe of the land, whether of seed or fruit, is the Lord's. So when it came to their cooking spices, they would tithe on it. See, I bought an ounce of mint, so that means I need to give a tenth of an ounce back to God. That's nitpicking. And they sought to do that. Now, let's bring it down. It would be like this. What Jesus' words here are like saying, if you play basketball and you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you just have to be better than LeBron James. If you play the cello, all you've got to do to enter the kingdom of heaven is to be better than Yo-Yo Ma. If you compose music to enter the kingdom of heaven, you just need to be better than Beethoven or Mozart. Think about that. Can we attain such standards? No. And that's the point. You and I cannot exceed their righteousness. We have no righteousness. Earlier I read Romans chapter 3, which is clear. No one is righteous. So if we are relying on righteousness and think, yeah, I can exceed their righteousness to get into the kingdom of heaven, we have serious problems. And if we stop there, we would be hopeless. But we are not hopeless for this reason. Entrance to the kingdom is through the righteousness of Jesus. From beginning to end, that is our hope. In the book of 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul wrote, For our sake he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. That is the righteousness from God, the righteousness that God demands of us. 
So God has provided in Jesus the standard of living that we need, the standard of ethical behavior we must have, and it is applied to our accounts. And it is applied by faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, he says, For Jesus, for Christ, is the end. That is the culmination, the desired outcome of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the scandal of Christianity. Our salvation is not based upon our ability to keep the Ten Commandments or to be good or righteous, for we can't. Our salvation is based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ that becomes ours by faith. Somebody once said, all we contribute to our salvation is our sin. And then we trust God. Lord, I can't. You can. Lord, I'm a sinner. Jesus is perfect. Lord, apply to me his righteousness. Years ago, before mom passed away, I had gone down to visit her one, one Friday. It was after dad had died and was trying to check on mom. And mom was always fastidious about keeping the gutters clean. That was just her, get the gutters clean. And she got to the point where she couldn't get up on the ladder. My mom was one of that generation. If it needed to be done, she did it. I mean, this is a girl that grew up playing with a, a pig's bladder for a ball. She said, Mark, I can't get up on the ladder anymore. Mama, you shouldn't be up on the ladder at all. Well, would you get the gutters clean for me? I'll do it, Mama. And so I started to get out and clean it. And she said, wait a minute. You can't clean the gutter in those clothes? Mama, I don't have any other clothes. She said, I'll take care of it. She goes in the utility room and she comes out with a pair of my dad's coveralls. She goes, you step into these. My dad and I were about the same height. I step into dad's coveralls, and all of a sudden I find that I am wearing exactly what I need for the job at hand. Do you see where I'm going with this, church? God has provided the clothing you need for the kingdom of heaven through Jesus Christ. And by faith, we step into his grace that covers all of our sin by removing them. That's our entrance into heaven. That's how we can say, Lord, I Trust you, and you will supply it. Now, here's the question we need to wrestle with. How do we know? Now, we, we go on faith, Lord, I believe. But it doesn't mean then that we ignore how we live. For if the righteousness of Christ is applied to our lives by faith, then our lives will demonstrate the righteousness of Jesus. Not perfectly, for we still struggle with sin. But we will begin to live to reflect. And one of the signs that we are reflecting the righteousness of Christ that we have received is that we will seek to serve him from the inside out. You see, the problem with the Pharisees' righteousness was that it was all about the looks. It all revolved around what looks righteous. That's why in... Um, in Matthew chapter 23, 27 and 28, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all unclean. Do you understand why they didn't like Jesus? He says, you're like a grave marker. You're polished, you're pretty, you're beautiful. But underneath that grave marker's death. 
Outwardly, you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of righteousness and hypocrisy. That was the point that Jesus was getting at in Matthew 23, where he said, yeah, you're tithing all these cooking spices, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Now, that's an important phrase. All the law is important, but what Jesus is saying is that underneath some of the external things, there are weightier issues because our actions are to reflect these values. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. All those attributes are relational. Justice, seeking how to live rightly with one another. Mercy, showing grace and compassion. Faithfulness, which reflects the said of God. Gracious love to one another. He is saying that our righteousness should be one that reveals, is revealed in our actions. The emptiness of the Pharisees' faith was shown in how they treated others. Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. It was to magnify this point. Jesus said a man was traveling down from Jericho to Jerusalem. He was set upon by robbers and they beat him and stole everything he had and left him to die on the side of the road. A priest comes by. The priest looks, sees the man, but keeps on going. A Levite comes, sees the man, but keeps on going. And I wonder in my mind if as they pass by, they didn't think, well, that's a shame. That is a shame. We need better laws. We need better laws in the land. I remember when you didn't have to worry about riding down this road. Oh, we got to do something. And they kept going. Or maybe they looked at the victim and they said, well, he should have known better. He should have been prepared. But it's clear what Jesus is emphasizing because he said, a Samaritan of all people stopped. Bound up the man's man's wounds and offered him help. Which brings us to three questions we need to ask ourselves. Now, I put these questions before you for diagnostic purposes. And my prayer is that if we realize we are coming short, that it will drive us to the grace of God. First diagnostic question is this. Am I compassionate or critical? That's a sign that we're working from the inside out. The Samaritans showed compassion. As we live our lives, what describes us? Which describes the attitude of God who is long-suffering and patient? God has the right to judge. You and I don't. A friend of mine put it like this. What are we carrying with us as we go through the day? Are we carrying a gavel to judge or gauze to heal? I like that. Are we carrying a gavel to judge others, to be harsh? Remember, the Pharisees were harsh. Jesus healed a man, several people actually, on the Sabbath. A man could not walk And Jesus looked at him and said, take up your mat and walk. And it was on a Sabbath. And the Pharisees were mad about it. How could you do that, Jesus? The guy was walking now. He was paralyzed. He's walking. He's healed. And they are angry about that. Why? You healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you're forgetting 
Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, in their laws of abiding nature, they forgot about grace and compassion. And Lord, help us not to do the same. Today, we live in an age that feeds that that attitude of harshness. One of the ways that you and I will be light is letting the righteousness of Christ shine through us by being compassionate rather than critical. I know these questions are going to hit home. They certainly did to me as I thought through them. Am I humble or haughty? You see, compassion and grace flow from humility. Pharisees had no humility. They wanted to be seen. That's why when they gave their tithes, they would have people blow trumpets. He's about to give a large offering. you got to come and see this. You could almost see the Pharisee talking to his assistant. And listen, I want you to be sure you get the first news of Jerusalem there because I want to be giving a big offering and we could use the PR. Jesus said, they've got the reward. He says, when you give, you give secretly. So secretly the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. That's humility. To seek to serve others. Now, the thing about humility is there's a danger that when we admit we are humble that we've lost humility. Lord, I thank you. I am so humble. <laughs> no. <laughs> How do we grow in humility? Now, obviously, there's the church answers. We, we pray. We, we read the scripture. And those are accurate. I don't mean to demean those in any way. And I've often said before, you don't stand next to Mount Everest to feel big about yourself. When we see God, we're humble. But I would also throw out two other things. If, if we need to grow in humility, we recognize there's a pride in our lives, I would encourage you to do this. Serve without anyone knowing it. Find a way to serve without making it a big deal. No posting it on Facebook, TikTok, um, Instagram, whatever the latest social media platform is. Just do it. You serve. No big deal. Maybe even give somebody else credit. The second thing I would encourage you to do is to practice thankfulness. You see, when we thank someone, we recognize that we are, being, we are the recipient of something that maybe we didn't deserve. Practicing thankfulness goes a long way to creating humility. So how do we do in this? Do we show thankfulness to those who serve us? How do we treat the, the custodial staff where we work? How do we treat those who are, are waiting our tables? Are we demanding, I'm paying for this? I, I really think God would say, I don't care that you're paying for it. You can be kind. And to those who are, are dating, if, I, <laughs> if Mark, Pastor Mark could give you some dating advice, it would be this. If you want an insight into the character of the person you're dating, look at how they treat those who are serving them. If you're in high school and they're talking down about the, the lady that works in the cafeteria, that's a warning sign. You go out to eat with them and they're not showing kindness to the man or the woman waiting your table, that's a warning sign. How do we treat others is a sign into our hearts. Once again, these questions are hard. But this is what Jesus is getting at. The righteousness of God 
creates in our heart change. Here's the third question. Am I a peacemaker or a strife maker? You ever met anybody that's just a strife maker? It doesn't matter where, what's going on. They find a way to stir things up. To them, every situation is like fire and they're gas. Did you know that in the book of Romans, Paul said this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Now, he's dealing with people who are drifting into legalism. Paul says that's not what the kingdom of heaven's about. It's about righteousness and peace and joy. Righteousness speaks of being made right with God, peace with God and one another, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's where we start. He says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. How do we thus serve Christ? Righteousness, peace, and joy. Now look at verse 19. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Pursue peace and what encourages others. You know, the old song says, Home on the range where not a discouraging word is heard. Oh, goodness. <laughs> We're far from the range today. One of the signs of the kingdom in our hearts is we seek for what brings peace and encouragement. Now, I put these three questions before you so that we can do that, that MRI of the heart. Not so that we will fall back and say, okay, okay, I've got to concentrate more on being more compassionate, but so that we can go back to Christ and say, Lord, help me. I do not want this message to be one that is laying upon you demands, but to be one that points you toward the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I'm going to share with you a story. I've used it before, but it's so good that it's kind of like a meal. You don't mind getting seconds on it. It's a story told by Eugene Peterson. The late Eugene Peterson was a pastor and theologian. Passed away about three or four years ago. He started his ministry in the 1950s on the west side of New York City, working as an intern at a church there. As he worked there, he began to become friends with a custodian. The custodian was a German immigrant by the name of Willi Olsa. Willi had immigrated to the United States after World War II. And Willi worked as a painter during the day. Then at night, he would come in and clean the church. And they struck up a friendship. And because Willi was a painter, he offered Eugene Peterson an opportunity for a portrait. So he said, you come over in the afternoon. I will paint before I go to the church to clean. And he said, during that time, they really grew in their friendship because they would discuss religion. Billy Olsa had nothing, nothing good to say about Christians. Ironic, because he did work at cleaning a church, but he had gone through the World War II where he saw Christians professing faith in Jesus Christ while they played Mozart as people went to the death camps. He had no use for Christians. And he would say to Eugene Peterson, don't go into the ministry. If you go into the ministry, the demands of ministry and the pressures of legalism will squeeze the joy and the grace out of you. Peterson would talk with him back and saying, you know, what, what happened in Germany was wrong, but that doesn't negate the power of God and the gospel. 
And all this time, Billy Olson is painting until one day, Billy's wife comes in and she looks at the portrait and she goes, Billy, what are you doing? Billy, what are you doing? You're painting him to look like a dead man. Eugene Peterson stood up and for the first time, Billy turned the portrait around and sure enough, the portrait on the canvas looked like a corpse. The cheeks were gaunt, yellowish. The eyes were sunken with dark circles. Billy said, no, 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 no. He's not dead. This is what he will look like when the grace is gone. When compassion has been taken away. Eugene Peterson said that Billy Olsa's painting, his portrait, was prophetic. And he said that he kept it. It was a small two-by-three canvas. He said he kept it. And he said regularly he would get it out, look at it, and then look in the mirror to see if there was any resemblance. And he lost grace and compassion. And this morning, that's what I'm asking you. To take that hard look and say, does my life reflect the righteousness of Jesus? His righteousness is the only way into heaven. And if I've been clothed in his righteousness, it will be demonstrated in compassion, humility, and peace. Bow with me, if you will. Father, these things are beyond us. We confess that. We need your Holy Spirit to generate these things in us. And Lord, this morning, I pray that you would help us to ask and answer these questions honestly. And Father, as we maybe at times struggle to be compassionate, and who, in a, who of us doesn't? We struggle with humility. We, we struggle with being a peacemaker. Lord, I pray that we will run quickly to the cross. And recognize your grace and ask you to fill our lives with that grace. Father, we need you to do this. We need your righteousness. And I thank you that it is freely given. So, Lord, this morning, if we need to, to pray, Lord, we do so. If we need to, to seek you more, draw us into yourself. And I pray this for the glory of your name. Amen.